Hello, and welcome to Baha'i Blogcast with me, your host, Rain Wilson. This is where I interview members of the Baha'i faith and other friends from all over the world about their hearts and minds and souls, their spiritual journeys, what they're interested in, and what makes them tick. Enjoy. Hello, everybody listening to Baha'i Blogcast. It's me, Rain Wilson, and... I am thrilled to be on the Skype machine with Joy DeGruy, who is in Sacramento. Hi, Joy. Hi. How are you? I'm good. Excellent. Wow. Um, Really super thrilled to be speaking with you today. There's so many incredible topics that you're well-versed in. You've had such an exciting, dynamic uh, spiritual life as a Baha'i, and I can't wait to share your story. So, where does your spiritual story begin? Let's get right to it. How does oh, you said some story yeah. the other day about a teenage Joy DeGruy becoming a Baha'i <laughs> in Pasadena? What what happened? Okay, so going way way back, um, I grew up in the AME Church, which is uh, stands for African Methodist Episcopal Church. Although you know we weren't like really serious heavy duty churchgoers, but that's what I grew up with. Uh, my father was a Mason, which made be important a little later. Of course, I can't tell you much because then I'd have to kill you. Um, so <laughs> I always like up, to start a Baha'i blogcast off with a death threat. <laughs> <laughs> there, there you go. This is what my daddy said to me. Okay, I can't tell you anymore, you know. Um, so, I, But I grew up with uh, my father, you know, went to the sixth grade, actually. And he, you know, was from Louisiana, both my parents from Louisiana. And but he grew up with a real strong sense of independence and kind of speaking your mind and And asking questions. So I was raised to ask questions. So uh, I went to a variety of different, you know, religions, uh, meetings with friends. You know, I went to the Catholic Church. I got actually got thrown out of there. But um, I went to, uh, you know. I'm not even going to ask. I'm not even going to ask. Don't ask. You know, I I wasn't. And then I was, uh, you know, I just didn't know. I mean, I didn't know the protocol. So um, growing up in the church, you know, you just ask questions. I thought I could ask the questions of the priest. That didn't go over well. Um, I also, you know, studied Nishran Shoshu. A friend of mine was into the, the Hare Krishna thing. I, you know, my brother, Oscar DeGruy at the time, was also very deep in his investigation, um, also very active in the Black Power Movement, Panthers. And so we went to. I went and he to my later first, he later founded the Baha'i Youth Workshop, right? The the dance uh, movement that was happening uh, in the eighties. Yeah, Baha'i yeah. Youth Workshop, but yeah. it was a little bit more than dance movement. I'm tr- well, going to tell you that now. Sure. But yeah, he he founded that in a garage. Actually, we were in in the garage. That's where we met um, all the kids from the hood, and um, you know all the Baha'i kids from the hood. Okay. <laughs> so we you know this was kind of where we started, and he was a you know you know Oscar's an actor, so. You know, that whole theatrical thing came into play. But he wanted to do something specifically with, with Baha'is, you know, and Baha'i youth. And um, so we go, I started going to Firesides. And the Fireside I went to was Emma Dickey. And Emma Dickey uh, lived in Pasadena, Altadena area. And I was young, you know, 12 years old. And so when we go to this Fireside, my, my sister-in-law, Oscar's, uh, Os- uh, Oscar's wife, uh, who passed away, um, we went, we'd go to the Fireside. And all the kids had to go in the back room. And gradually, I started kind of staying in the room with the adults. And I started, you know, nobody noticed me. So I started. Um, but my brother, of course, as he had earlier begun his, his research in terms of the Baha'i faith, he didn't trust the Baha'is. Let's be clear. He said, 
he didn't know if this was another trick that they were trying to do on, on, on black people. He just, he just didn't trust it. You know, he was in the movement. And so uh-huh. he would take, he would take me with him to the firesides. Then he says, I know how I'm going to find out. I'm going to read, I'm going to read their books. Right. But he didn't just read the books. He had me reading the books out loud as he paced up and down. Right. So he'd read, then he'd say, read that again. And so I'd read it again. And I told you, we're like Yogi and, and Boo Boo. And I'm like, hey, Yogi, it seems good to me. They give you cookies and stuff. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, I like them. They, you know, they seem to be nice people to me. But, you know, he was just not convinced. And so long story short, uh, we read our way into the faith. We literally read our way into the faith. That's beautiful. And, um, you know, fell into a, a well that had no end. Nice, nice. And so then what? What do you, you go to college? What did you, how did you study? How did you take that into your adult life? Um, well, first of all, the first thing that happened, I was around 13. And I remember saying to Oscar, you know, I, I, I said, I think I know what I want to do in my life. And Oscar goes, okay, what? I said, I just want to teach the faith. <laughs> Period. Mm. He goes, uh, yeah, about that. You're going to have to have a profession. You got to keep the lights on. That, that's usually not how it works. I said, mm-hmm. but I don't want to do anything. I don't want to do anything else. Mm-hmm. He goes, well, I hear what you're saying. I understand your enthusiasm, but uh, yeah, you're going to have to figure out something else to do, right? But I was very disappointed with the fact that I couldn't spend every day of my life just teaching the faith and talking about the Baha'i faith. That was, mm-hmm. that was my interest, right? Um, so I kind of, you know, I realized that I had to figure out something to do. So I started studying speech, pathology, <laughs> okay, speech. Pathology, meaning I was going to be a speech therapist, I thought, mm. until the man brought a human head to class. <laughs> and, they, <laughs> and then I started realizing, uh, you know, two, two problems with it. One, uh, I wasn't OK with the head. Uh, number two, I, I just had a problem with folks who had difficulty speaking, which is a problem if you're going to be a speech pathologist. Yeah, that's, so, that's, that could be an issue. Yeah. Big issue. So I changed it to speech communication. Right. So I said, OK, I could do that. So I got into speech communication and fell in love with it. Actually, I fell in love with uh, the just whole idea. There was different kinds of communication. And when we got to the part where we talked about cross-cultural communication, I really got interested. Mm. And that mm. just really lit me up because I was really I've always been curious about other people. I, I've always been a people person. And so I was like, wow. And just the whole idea, the nuances between, you know, how people communicate what they're trying to communicate, all of the, all that stuff got involved. So I, at that time I was going to Cal State LA and I was a speech drama major. So it was like together, speech drama. I like drama. And then it it was crazy. I saw one movie and I decided, uh, I I came to class the next day and I told uh, my my teacher that uh, anyone who enjoyed or liked the movie was sick and twisted. And uh, so I stopped the whole classroom, right? So she took me outside. She goes, Joy, you seem to, uh, to be having a little problem here with... Uh... And I'd seen the last 10 minutes, which no one should ever see, of a movie. I was going in to see, I think it was uh, a Close Encounters. That's what I was coming to see. But the movie before that was just ending. And the woman said, oh, just go ahead in. And it was the last, I think, five or 10 minutes of Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Which, yeah. Yeah. Now you know what I'm that's, talking about. That's hardcore, that's, yeah. It was way hardcore. I stood up in, in the theater and said, this is sick, right? I was just totally blown away. Then I went to school in my improvisation class and said, by the way, anyone that has gone to see on purpose, <laughs> this, 
you're sick and it's twisted. I was just very emotionally affected. Mm -hmm. So at that point, uh, my teacher said, well, maybe you should write about this. You know, she was like doing some therapeutic stuff with me. And then I just decided I, you know, I couldn't align myself with anything that said it was art that I didn't feel like was art. Mm. Uh, that was assault to me, to my soul and my heart and my spirit or anyone else's. So I went into speech and purely speech. And then, of course, my teacher, really great guy, wanted me to go into debate. I don't like debate. I, that's, that's not what I want to do. So I, he had me compete for our school and I won the championship or whatever it was. And from there, I just was that in, it was, in debating or doing a speech. It was it was like a competition from around the country, mm -hmm. uh, a national competition, and I and I won the speech for a talk I gave on progressive revelations. Oh wow! That's what won. There you are teaching the Baha'i faith in your studies. Hey, it doesn't get any better than that. <laughs> <laughs> it simply doesn't get any better. And I think moving on from there. Um, you know, I have always had a very earnest uh, interest and concern about uh, black folks, always have. You know, growing up, uh, looking at uh, the experience of people that look like me, um, feeling and seeing the struggles uh, growing up in South Central Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I've always had that, you know, I was, I was the kid in the classroom that um, shared my lunch with the kid that didn't have one. I was the kid that stood up for the, whoever the kid was that was being picked on. It's just the nature of who I am. It didn't matter who that kid was or what race or what they look like. I just have an internal barometer that says, you know, if this isn't okay for you to do that, this person, I'm going to, I'm going to stand in that, in that gap for them. Mm, and I, mm. th that's from, from kindergarten on, I've been right. that person. Yeah. So I, I was, of course, very interested in the people that look like me and, and the kinds of ways that they moved in the world that didn't look pretty to me. And so I started kind of committing myself to being of service in my community, which led me into social work and all the, <laughs> the numerous degrees that followed that. Mm -hmm. So I have four degrees. Um, first one is Bachelor's of, of Science and Communication. Then I have a Master's in um, Social Work. And then I have a Master's in Clinical Psychology. And then I have a PhD um, in, in research, social work research. So and all of that really was a reflection of confusion. <laughs> wow. I hope, I hope you've paid off your student loans. Let me just say, you know, <laughs> done, done and done, done and done. Good. Wow, that's impressive. That's a lot of degrees. And also you're a therapist, too, so we can do a little therapy while we're here uh, on the podcast. No, we're not, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to get uh, kind of, I just want to jump quickly towards, that's a great story. I, I love how your love of teaching the faith you knew something involved with speech, you know, you, whether it was speech pathology or drama or speech competition or something, and how that moved you into, you know, standing up for people and, and fighting for social justice. Uh, I, I love, you know, kind of tracing that pathway of your work. And I guess the thing, you know, when you Google you and your work, the thing that you're most well known for is the post-traumatic Slave Syndrome, PTSS, and you've written books on it and workbooks on it. And I really want to take our time and go into this a little bit for people. I assume the listener doesn't know anything about this stuff, so I'd love for you to talk us through. Can you, can you start with what trauma is and what PTSD is? So most of us are familiar with post-traumatic stress disorder. And post-traumatic stress disorder 
is a disorder that occurs. First of all, it's a diagnosis. It's a diagnosis in the in the DSM, which is called the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So it's actually a clinical, um, you know, issue. And um, it occurs. Uh, Post traumatic stress disorder is usually the result of having experienced a single trauma, possibly, quite possibly, a single trauma, and that trauma could have been experienced directly or indirectly, meaning that you could have, you know, you could have been shot or attacked, or you could have learned about someone you love being, uh, you know, attacked or shot. And so there's a, the result is a stress-related illness for some. Um, of course, we're all, you know, very different in terms of our resilience, but for some people, it causes such a, a, a traumatic experience for them that they need assistance, sometimes with medication, sure. others with therapy. So you hear a lot about it in terms of war, about someone being right. in war, and maybe it's several events that happen, or one specifically traumatic event of some guy and he's with his buddies and they all get blown up or something like that, and uh, flashbacks and and whatnot. And and again, it, it it actually was born the the research around it came out of shell shock, exactly what you just described. Mm. And so what I started to do is I started to look at the symptoms associated with post traumatic stress disorder, and they are numerous. Um, basically, physiological or psychological reactivity based on things that you come upon that trigger or resemble the original event. Uh, feelings of foreshortened future, in other words, you don't feel like you're going to live long. Mm. Exaggerated startle response. Um, huge outbursts of anger, difficulty falling or staying asleep, right? These are some of the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, that's one trauma, possibly, directly or indirectly experienced. Right. So my question was, what did 300 years of slavery produce? Mm-hmm. What did that produce? And, and is it plausible that we're not talking about a single trauma? We're not talking about that. We're talking about lifetimes and generations of trauma mm-hmm. that went unaddressed, unassisted. So these are people who have experienced firsthand trauma and then witnessed trauma existing all around them throughout their entire lives right. and for generations. So again, as a social scientist, my first, my first question was, what happened? What, did that, what, what does that look like? Mm. And then, you know, there was a very, very critical piece, and this is the absolute truth, that really directed me into post-traumatic. And that was a quotation from the advent of divine justice from Shoghi Effendi. And what Shoghi Effendi is, is in most, and, and some folks will be familiar with this, Shoghi Effendi basically talks about uh, the most vital and challenging issue. He talks about the relationship between black and white people. But he says something that really triggered me many years ago. In his writings, he says that he speaks to black people specifically about suspicion and willingness to let go of the past. And he talks about white people in their inherent and often unconscious feelings of superiority. I thought that word inherent as at the time, you know, because you know when you read Shoghi Fendi, you need a dictionary and a thesaurus. <laughs> So at the time, I was fairly young. And I'm going, inherent? What does, what does that mean? And it means inborn. And now, you know, Shoghi Fendi would labor for, time, for weeks sometimes over one word to make certain it carried the meaning that was intended by Abdu'l-Bahá. Baha'u'llah. And so I'm going, why would he say inborn? Well, fast forward, and, 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 and we'll talk about epigenetics, because Shoghi Fendi was referring to something way before anyone had ever thought about it. Mm. But in that same quotation, he says to white people that they should master any impatience 
of any lack of responsiveness. In other words, when you finally reach across to, to, to speak to and address and aid African-American people, you need to master any impatience on any lack of responsiveness on the part of a people that have endured for so long a period mm, mm. Such, such grievous and slow healing wounds. Yeah. And when, when he said slow healing wounds, now understand he wrote this in 1939. Wow. Mm-hmm. This is well, well after slavery. So he wasn't talking about slavery. So what were the wounds, I thought? Now I'm a clinician, right? And I have another lens through which to observe this thing. And I said, what are the slow healing wounds? Mm-hmm. And that's how it came up with post-traumatic slave syndrome. So then I had to operationalize. How, how, how then does this get transmitted? What does it look like in contemporary society? Because my, uh, my work has to do with multigenerational trauma, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And how did this multigenerational trauma play out for black folks? So let's do a little math. So if you're looking at, you know, when the Spaniards, uh, people from Spain brought the first enslaved Africans to the Carolinas, we're, we're looking at, you know, 1500. So we're looking at approximately 300 years of, of enslavement. Right. So the, the question becomes now when we unpack what slavery was, because, you know, you get a lot of pushback. Oh, a lot of people had slaves. You all enslaved each other. You know, all the regular pushback sure. you get around mm-hmm. slavery. I'm going, uh, yeah, most societies had some form of indentured servitude to slavery. However, American chattel slavery, and I emphasize chattel, uh, differed from every form that preceded it. It differed in the manner in which a person became enslaved. It differed in the length of servitude. It differed in the treatment of those that were enslaved. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, it differed in how they were perceived as human beings. So Europeans systematically turned the capturing, shipping, selling, and breeding of other human beings into a business, Hmm. into the backbone of an entire economy. That you see is different. So the question becomes 339, let's say, years of slavery, or let's say 300 years of slavery. Question is, you're being beaten, you're being sold, you're being raped, you're being mutilated, you're being experimented on. All of what I'm just saying has documented proof connected to it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you've been brutalized, and you've witnessed this uh, happening not only to you, but to your children and your loved ones. Yep. Question, did anyone get any help? No. Dr. Phil didn't come. No. <laughs> okay. Nobody <laughs> no, they, no group therapy. No, no, no help. They didn't have a health care plan back then no, that covered therapy. No, no therapy for him. So I go, okay, so 300 years of, of trauma, mm-hmm. okay, and, mm-hmm. and no help, okay? So then you got freed. Yay. Mm-hmm. Any help then? Anybody stop and go, we know you've had hundreds of years, generations of trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'd like to get some group therapy before you help you a little bit. No, that didn't happen. Yeah. So here comes the most important question. 300 years of slavery, no help. Slavery ends. Emancipation Proclamation. No help then. Right. Did the trauma continue? Mm-hmm. You bet it did. Matter of fact, all of the lynchings and Jim Crow, that all followed slavery. Sure. So what you had, now let's do it again, 300 years of trauma, no help. Then you got free, no help. Then you got more trauma yeah, and no help. You know what What it makes me think of is... um, It's a mirror. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know what it makes me think of is people talk about, like my grandparents went through the Great Depression and they were so deeply affected by the Great Depression. And they talk about that generation that went through that. 
and how it affected them growing up in that. It affected their parents. Um, you know, my, my grandparents used to take little slivers of bars of soap um, and then compile them all together and melt them together to make one regular bar of soap, even though they had plenty of money. Uh, they had just these quirky sure. little things around deprivation. And, and the Great Depression was 10 years. Right. Not 300 right. years, not 400 <laughs> years. Back. You know, it's it was... And, and it's the same thing with people who lived through a war. You talk about like, oh, they lived through World War II or these Europeans that lived through World War I or whatever. And, you know, again, super traumatic, horrible, terrible. But again, a short period of time, five years, eight years, 10 years. And you're talking about generation after generation after generation. That, that's, that's fascinating. That's such, that's such a great point. And you've answered it. Actually, you answered that, that question. And I'm often asked, you know, well, well, what does that look like? In other words, so we know that, for example, um, you know, again, with Holocaust and a number of other groups, it's very, very clear that these, this transmission has occurred, that trauma uh, has occurred. But the more recent information is what's most fascinating and what, what is really putting my work kind of, it's kind of reemerging, um, is, and that's the study of epigenetics. Okay. Okay. What does and, that mean? I have no idea what that means. All righty. So epigenetics, and let me just tell you, it's thick. I have several books and my head hurts when I finish reading just one paragraph. Okay. <laughs> because I, you know, I, this is by no means my lane. Uh, I, I stay in my lane. Usually. Okay. But epigenetics, people started actually approaching me about it. So they started doing, and they've done actually work in epigenetics with animals for a long, long time and uh, plants and a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. And what they did was they took more recently, they took a rat and this particular rat, they accustomed that rat to be develop an aversion to a smell, let's say a rose smell or peppermint. And what they essentially did to accustom the, this rat to have an aversion is to shock it. I mean, let's be clear. You shock the rat, you release the smell, the rat learns to hate the smell. Nah, it's not too deep. Condition response. Mm-hmm. So what happens is after they, you know, gets to the point where this rat without the stimulus uh, shows an aversion to the smell of peppermint, they then tested the babies of that rat. And they discovered that the babies of the rat were born with an aversion to peppermint, having never been exposed to it. Whoa. And then they tested the grandbabies of the rat. And the grandbabies of the rat were born with an aversion to peppermint, having never been exposed to it. Wow. So what, what they discovered by that research is that trauma actually can get trapped in the DNA not only did they look at animals, but they said nightmares, dreams, and the history of our grandparents can actually show up, which makes sense when you start thinking about what you hear Native people say, what you hear African people say, the memories of the ancestors, unresolved grief, all of these things that we have said traditionally in African and, and, and Native cultures and even Latino cultures is now finding its evidence in science. So then what I, they even have, uh, there's something called the Quebec snow uh, storm experiment. And what they did was they looked at people who had survived this horrific snowstorm and they started finding in the children born post that event during women that became pregnant or had children following that ended up having children that were born with an inflammatory condition as if they had been in a snowstorm. So they knew then that these things are transmitted genetically. So now let's go back to what Shoghi Effendi said Mm -hmm. when he said inherent 
feeling of superiority. So you have 300 years of oppressing a group of people. You also have 300 years of those who did the oppressing. Mm -hmm. And he said inherent, which means inborn feeling of superiority. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, mm -hmm. so for me, I'm starting to go, it's all coming alive for me. Mm -hmm. it's, it's coming I listen. Uh, I'm telling you, Rain. This was so deep for me as I as the realization of it kind of showed up, and so I started to then read slave narratives. Right. So I read thousands of slave narratives. Uh -huh. These are the stories of the slaves sure. to see, in fact, how does this stuff get transmitted? So I'm on a radio show. Right. This is years ago. I'm on a radio show, and I'm talking about this post traumatic, and I'm talking about transmission. You've heard things like, oh, oh, she was really, a, this is black people, by the way. This is not, I'm not talking about white people yet. Mm -hmm, I'm talking about black, mm -hmm. you have black people saying stuff like, whoa, he was really attractive, even though he was dark. Mm -hmm. Or she was pretty, she was light skinned and had good hair. These are contemporary statements that are made by black people about black people. Mm -hmm. So for me, I needed to trace the etiology of that behavior. I've been to seven countries in Africa. It's not an African thing, but it is a Caribbean thing. It is an African-American thing. And in fact, it exists anywhere you have had chattel slavery and people of African descent. I wow. started to see the symptomology. Yeah. So now I'm wondering, so I'm on this, on this radio call talking about this. And, I, and someone asked me, well, can you give an example in contemporary society? I said, sure. So I'm going to give you the story, the way I share it with people, so that they, white people, anybody actually, because you've probably seen it if you, you've been awake and living in America. You've probably uh -huh. seen it. So okay. Had proximity to black people. So you have, let's say you have a, um, a white parent and a black parent. So you have a white mother, black mother. Could be a father, so it's not gender specific. So you have a white mother and a black mother. Both of them have children. Let's say they have sons. The sons grow up together, they go to school together, they play together, everything's great. Those two parents find themselves at a meeting, a big school meeting, and they're seated next to each other. And on either side of them are their sons. So the black mother, knowing white mother and her son, leans over and says, oh, by the way, you know your son's really doing well. And the white mother goes, oh my goodness, he really is. Did I mention to you that he in, he's in tag? <laughs> that would be the talented and gifted program. In addition to that, you know, he won the science fair last week. His uncle's an astronaut. This boy is brilliant. Mm -hmm. And she's oozing with enthusiasm. Wonderful. So she sits back feeling very warm and fuzzy. And while she's sitting there, she thinks about it. And she realizes that the black mother's son is actually excelling her son. Mm -hmm. So she, she leans forward and she goes, wait a minute. You're talking about my son. Your son is the one that's really coming along. And the black mother's response, oh, girl, get out of here. You should have seen that boy yesterday. Whoa, Lord, he works my nerves. He's something else. You think so, but whoa, he's terrible. <laughs> right? So, so and, it's, and anyone black, anyone black that, that's listening to this, will go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's a very familiar thing within African-American culture. Mm, and mm. So the, but the white response to that is, oh, gosh, they're so negative. My goodness, look at them. They're just no wonder. They're just so negative. Now, there's, I've often said in my work, it's always the secrets that make us sick. It's always the secrets. And so what every black man, woman, and child that's listening to this uh, knows is that when a black parent, father, sister, cousin, doesn't matter who it is, and regardless of class, if you hear them say in response to something like a compliment, you hear them say, oh, yeah, oh, but he's something else. Ooh, 
everyone knows that the very moment that that person is saying that, that they're proud. So the question as a social scientist and as a big grown up, as a grandmother, mother and all that is, okay, wait a minute. Then why are you saying that? Now, I understand because I've been raised to understand the secret, Mm. but I want to I want to give context to that secret. Mm. While I'm doing this interview, I get a call from Adelaide Sanford, who's a vice chancellor of education of New York, black woman. She's in her 80s at the time. (laughs) Adelaide calls me because when she hears me explain the etiology of that behavior, she confirms that her grandmother, who was enslaved, told her the same thing I said. I'm getting ready to say to you when she was a child sitting at her knee. Uh-huh. So now let's roll that scene I just shared with you back several hundred years. Okay. Now you have a black mother, and she may be, she's enslaved. And as as an enslaved person, so are her children. Mm-hmm. A white slave owner, maybe she's in the fields or in the big house, I don't know, but the white slave owner comes through, male or female, and says to the black mother, is that your boy there? That's your boy? Oh, my goodness, that boy sure is coming along. He is sure coming along. Now, what is she going to say? No, sir, he's stupid. He's shiftless. He can't work because I don't want you to sell him. Mm. Mm. If it's my daughter, I'm going to denigrate her because I don't want you to breed her. Mm. So what, what that is called is appropriate adaptation when living in a hostile environment. Mm. We, nev- we never unlearned that. So when we say, when people say about black people, oh, you know, that's their culture. Well, we can ill afford to swallow that whole because there's some poison in the cookies. Mm. And the poison is the adaptive behavior that made sense then, but doesn't make sense now. But we never had this conversation, right? We never got to talk about it because everybody kept telling us to get over it. So now let's roll it back forward. So you have the black mother and the white mother and their sons are seated beside them. Uh Uh-huh. And the black kid looks at his mother and he thinks, how come you can't just be proud of me? Mm. Like she's proud of her son. Because you see, he hasn't learned the secret. And by the time he learns it, he's already been injured by it. Post-traumatic slave syndrome. Wow. Wow. That's, that's fascinating. There's so much. I mean, we could, you know, I don't want, I don't want to skip around too much. There's, there's so much to talk about with just that. I mean, obviously, you could do a whole series of lectures on it. You could do a year's worth of college courses on it. But so here's a question for you. So a lot of the people listening to this podcast aren't Americans. Certainly racism, both, you know, slight, mild racism, classism, institutionalized racism exists in a lot of, most of the countries of the world in various ways, shapes, or forms. So how does this apply to someone who's listening to this in India or Australia or Romania? So I think that, you know, first of all, I think it resonates with anyone who is oppressed. Um, I think it resonates uh, in terms of the degree to which uh, the injury is set has to do has a lot to do with how much of who you are as an authentic person uh, you are able to um, authentically represent. How, how authentic can you be in your own world? How much of your culture have you retained that allows you to um, navigate the racism or navigate that hit. Because, you know, we're pretty resilient as human beings. And clearly, African-Americans are resilient, although, you know, we got a lot of broken parts. But I think people's ability to retain their language, their ability to to, uh, collectively come together, um, has in some way buttressed them 
for the most major forms of this injury. But I think they can hear and they can sense and they can understand. The reason I know is I was a UN conference um, keynote speaker on race. Mm. And so I'm speaking to people from all over the world. And they were so affected by the conversation. First of all, I was nervous because I was going, oh, my God. They were translating this into a, you know, dozens of right, languages. Right. And when I was finished speaking, I, I apologize. I said, I don't want to presume that you, your experience is mine or that you fully understand it. Please know that I'm only speaking my experience as an African-American and my research on african I'm apologizing. Something everybody tells you, speech 101, you never do. But I did because I was, I, I sat there and said, what, how presumptuous of me, presumptuous of me to, to think this. And when I finished, I came off the stage. I was shaking, of course. It's my first time doing, you know, UN Conference on Race. It's pretty big. There were people going into the booths where the translators were with the headsets, pulling them out and telling them with tears saying, please tell her, please mm. tell her of my experience, mm. how much I understand, how well I understand what she's saying. They're crying and they're speaking another language and the person's trying to translate and they got the, it was just overwhelming. And I thought to myself, not you too, not you too. Mm. Mm. Now, this was not heartening for me. It was hurtful to me, mm -hmm. but, it, but it, it just really set the stage for understanding how important the, uh, the essential concept of the oneness of mankind is. Mm. How, how crucial it is for us to see our own inherent worthiness. You know, Baha'u'llah says, noble have I created thee. Mm. All mm. of us have been created noble, all of us. But we don't all feel that way. And I yeah. think that you know, that's, that's what kind of, I mean, it really set the stage for me uh, doing this work. Wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, I think about uh, so many of the injustices in the world can really only be fixed with... Uh, you can pass all the laws you want, but they can really only be fixed through a spiritual transformation because, you know, we're all souls and we were all randomly put in these bodies, in these different colored bodies and these bodies that have different amounts of money and are born in different <laughs> geographical places. And, and we're going on this, you know, physical, spiritual journey through our 80 years on this planet. And until we can all see each other as just beautiful, noble creatures um that eliminates prejudice right there any kind of of, of prejudice or inequality to see exactly them. our inherent nobility regardless of what like i tell people all the time we're not going to always agree but please stay in the room <laughs> you know mm -hmm. you know you don't have to join with me you don't have to fully accept it i don't have to co-sign your behavior whatever get over that and understand our intrinsic connection as human beings our oneness yeah. in spite of the fact that we don't always have to agree yeah. You don't have to agree, but let's let's stay in the room. You it's, know, it's so now how do we how do we as Americans speaking as Americans right now? So you've got something like Black Lives Matter, which is two things at the same time. One is gets at some super important stuff going on. Uh, and gets at the heart of so much uh, racial injustice, institutionalized racism in police forces, etc., these big big topics and at the same time is really a shame because it's become so politicized that half the people that hear those words, they don't want anything to do with it. And it's, uh, it's a become a Republican versus Democrat thing. It's become this politicized thing. So how do we have this conversation and move it beyond politics and 
finger pointing and blame and how do we heal this? I know you, and by the way, you've got five minutes. So (laughs) how do you heal racism in five minutes? No, I mean, it's a big, it's a big topic, Joy, and my apologies. I know it's, it's an unfair question to ask, but it is an unfair question, but that's okay. I'm used to that. Um, I think that honestly, Rain, you've answered all in, 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 in what you're saying is that we've got to get outside of those uh, those agencies, if you will, if we really want to deal with this, we, we really have to show up for each other. We got to step in the gap. We have to cross over the lines of what is uncomfortable and, and come together. And whether, you know, again, I look at every, all of those movements have a place. I personally, I'm not marching. I'm not singing. I'm not doing any of that. <laughs> okay. I'm, maybe I'm just, my, my daughter says I've been black too long. That's my problem. <laughs> I'm not, I just, I'm not doing that because I really understand that's a display and it makes a statement. But what really matters is when we, we show up where we really need to show up and make those differences on the ground. You see, I don't think this is going to be a top down thing because it's a mess. I think we have to, as human beings, begin to come together for that simple reason that you said, to, to acknowledge and to uh, create a level of cohesion around our intrinsic worth mm. as human beings, our need to, to bring some sense of unity uh, to this process, because none of that's going to work. Yeah. None, it, honestly, I'm, I'm glad that people are doing what, and that people are doing what they, you know, what they know to do or what they don't know to do, but they want to do something. And as a Baha'i, I know that fundamentally, this is going to require people coming together from every walk of life. It's going to require us to get beyond the lines of nationalism and all of these things. It's going to require us to see our intrinsic humanity. And of course, that's not an easy thing, but we do it little by little. We do it by what you're doing right now, right? That's, this is your lane. This is what you do. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to do me. Mm-hmm. I don't tell people to do what I'm doing. Do you? Yeah. But do yeah. get in, get in a lane and stay in it. You, um, there's a beautiful story, uh, a viral video that you did online that I watched and you told an absolutely gorgeous story. I'm going to sum it up in a super concise fashion, but you were, uh, at a grocery store with uh, a relative of yours who's also part African-American, but she looked white and she wrote a check for her groceries and uh, had her kid there and and no problem. And you bought your groceries. You were right behind her in line and you were going to pay with a check and your daughter was right there with you. And the, you know, the, the pretty perky white cashier uh, was like, okay, I'm going to need two forms of ID to you, which she didn't ask for, for your relative who looked white. And then so you were like, hmm, do I have this battle right here right now? Do I say something? You know what? I'm just going to let this one go, and I'm going to just give her the ID. You give her the ID. Then she pulls out the giant book of flagged checks, of bad checks, people who write bad checks, to make sure that you're not on this list of people who write bad checks. And at that point, that's when you know that uh, something has to be said. You can see the tears in your daughter's eyes and the pain in her eyes, and there's people standing behind, but you, you know you've got to stand up and, and say something. This is just colossally unfair. And uh, you start to speak, and the girl doesn't really understand, and then your, your relative steps forward, and she addresses it. And she's able to get through to the white cashier um, because she appears white, and she looks white, has blue eyes, and... And, and, it was, and it was even more powerful, and correct me if I'm telling the story wrong or if I'm getting the, the point of the story off a little bit, but I just wanted to put it in a nutshell. Like, 
That was her doing her part. That was her being in her lane. What can you do? What can I do as a white dude? Um, what can she do as someone who is perceived as white to stand up for racial injustice and shine a light on it? Um, and then the manager came over and, you know, fortunately, perhaps the policies of that store were changed from that interaction. And, uh, and that's what we can do. How did I do with the story? And I'm sorry. Uh, that's, that's the best rendering of that story I have ever heard. Oh. <laughs> you calculated that much. I'm so glad you asked, didn't ask me to tell it. That was so well done. I mean, really, it was just extraordinarily well, well done. Very kind. Um, and I appreciate that. Uh, and, I'm, and I'm glad you said it because it is evidence. And Kathleen, who's also a Baha'i, um, and you have to understand, we love each other. We love each other. She looked at her niece. And she looked at that situation and she corrected it because we can. And there are plenty of moments in our lives when, you know, what I call that is, is exercising integrity in the moment of choice, right? Mm -hmm. You're exercising this integrity in this moment of choice. We all have them. Um, and this is the part, uh, again, this is not to be in a big group and to go rah, rah, I believe in this is one thing. But in those moments in your personal private lives, when you stand up, that's what really, that's where the rubber meets the road, mm. is when you mm. begin to walk it in your personal lives, when it's not so comfortable, when it may mean you're going to get some blowback. So, yeah, and I love Kathleen. We've talked about that, as a matter of fact, coming together, all of us, my daughter now, and who's grown, and, and really talking about that, that experience looking back. Um, but, yeah, it's, you've said it. Everyone has a role to play, everyone in this, in this process. And I think you know, like I said, I grew up uh, with the Baha'i writings. I grew up with my favorite quote, right? My favorite quote, what, the, one, the one I memorized when I was very, I memorized a lot because, you know, that's when your brain works when you're younger. Sure, yep. So my brain works, you know. So there was a quote that really speaks uh, to me and has always kind of guided me. And it's from a book called, you know, from Gleams. Gleams. Okay. And it says, night has succeeded day and day had succeeded night. And the hours and moments of your lives have come and gone. And yet none of you hath for one instant consented to detach himself from that which perisheth. But stir yourselves that the brief moments that are still yours may not be dissipated and lost. Even as a swiftness of lightning, your day shall pass and your body shall be laid to rest beneath a canopy of dust. What can you then achieve? How can you atone for your past failure? When I learned that quote, I thought to myself, this is all I have. This moment, this life, this yeah. day, this is all I have. This flash of and lightning. This is it. And I got to step in the gap. It's going to be scary sometimes. Sometimes people are going to be mean. Sometimes it's going to hurt. And I can't save anyone. I can't save anyone. But yeah. I can try to be there, to be a healing bomb, to be upliftment, to be inspiring. That's all I can hope to do. But what I can't do is sit on the sidelines. I will not. That's amazing. And that, you know, I, uh, I talk about that a lot if I talk to the youth and, uh, and stuff is to get down to the, the spiritual brass tacks of being a Baha'i and it's of being of any faith tradition is that, is that personal day of judgment that we all will have, whether you're Christian, Muslim, Baha'i, when we die, we have a conversation with Baha'u'llah or Muhammad <laughs> or Jesus. What have you done with your life? And, um, you know, you better have some answers, you know, because this, uh, this is quite a gift that we've been given. Stay woke. Stay awoke. Stay woke. What, uh, <laughs> Stay woke. Do you have any Baha'i heroes, people you look up to for inspiration, oh, people you relate my. to? 
goodness. Oh, gosh, there's too many of them. Um, you know, and first, first besides and foremost. Me, besides me, Joy? Well, of course, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, obviously, you're there at the top somewhere, right? Sure. Um, you know, I, I have to say, you know, um, um, my brother who brought me to the faith, um, my sister who um, we affectionately refer to as the wolf, who's also a Baha'i, who's, uh, you know, really the smartest one in the family. Um, uh, Hooper Dunbar and Marilyn, who have, you know, always been um, good friends and champions of, of work. You know, Hooper wrote a book, uh, The Forces of Our Time, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I matter of fact, I mentioned it to him today. And I said, you know, there was a quote in that book that when I read it, that really struck me. And he says, you know, we cannot as Baha'is hope to, you know, watch things crumble around us and then think we're going to come in and sweep up afterwards. He says, we are here to assuage the suffering. To, mm. to assist God, mm. to relieve uh, the, the hurt. You know, mm. our role is to show up and be present mm. and to do our part. And it just, again, another reminder. Um, and, and these are the folks, Aziz Yazdi, who I love, Mr. Fortan, just so many people, Enoch Olinga, you know, just uh, so many folks that I, I look up to uh, as Baha'is that have just really guided me and helped me um, to really find who I, who I was and to support who I was and to tolerate my, me when I was crazy. <laughs> I, you know, you had the moments where you just lose your mind and stuff, you know, so they, but they were there for me. They said, she'll, she'll be okay. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll keep working with her. You know, she's a little uh, testy, but. <laughs> that's oh, that's great. That's great. So what are you working on now? What do you, what are you struggling with now? What is your greatest uh, spiritual test? Maybe there's a book you're reading, a quote you're thinking about. What are you personally working on? You know, and this is going to sound so weird, but uh, I am very uh, passionate and emotional. You might have noticed that. A little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. Just a little. And what, what I'm needing to do is, is become more detached. Uh, I'm, I'm struggling with that right now. Uh, because, you know, my work and people who know me and know my work is on the ground. I work with, I, you know, if you're standing still, I'll, you know, I'll work with you. you know, I'll help mm-hmm. you. And I, and my work is everywhere. I'm on the ground and, you know, I'm at universities and, you know, Oxford, I've done all that stuff, but, but mainly I'm, I'm a really people person. And when I look at at least 30 years of my work and trying to help folks, the downtrodden, you know, Baha'u'llah says the poor is my trust, Garji then my trust, mm-hmm. you know, I've been there. And, and to watch some of that work becoming dismantled is heartbreaking for me up close mm. because I've spent so many years and I'm looking at people returning to me, the ones in the greatest need. Uh, and I'm looking at the little that people have being dismantled. It's, it's very difficult. So my, my detachment, uh, I need to, to get about that because it, it hurts me. And I need to, um, to back up and understand this too shall pass. And, um, all I can do is my part, but you know, when you were, you've been front and center and to see the work crumbling, to see mm. it being assaulted in the way that it is, uh, it's been very difficult for me. Mm. And what do you, what do you look to for solace? <laughs> well, I, honestly, uh, one of the, one of the most important things that I think I have is, uh, one uh, is, is my ability to pray and meditate and, and take myself to another place in terms of reading the writings and looking at the, the bigger picture. I, you know, one of the sure. things I love, the stars and understanding the expansiveness of the universe and realizing how very tiny uh, we are in the scheme of things. Getting perspective on it. Um, okay. 
being able to reach out to the people I know and love, which is part of the reason why I'm, I'm here at Hoopers, because you know, we're going to have those conversations and those are going to uplift me and they're going to rejuvenate me to go back out into the field to do uh, to do the good work. Mm. So you talk really about re- recharging your spiritual batteries and also keeping a keeping a grand perspective, a cosmological perspective on uh, our struggles here on planet Earth. That's right. Perfect. Yeah. Good. Now, no interview with you would be complete if we didn't talk about fishing. Oh, yeah. Well, well <laughs> of course. So, dear listeners, we had a pre-conversation, and uh, Joy was uh, very adamant that I knew that she, she was obsessed with fishing. She loves fishing. She even sent me a video of you <laughs> catching a giant fish. You caught that giant. What kind of fish was that thing that you caught? It's a lingcod. I caught a lingcod out in the San Francisco Bay. Oh, my gosh. Very large link cod, but I didn't win. There's a there's a little a little pool that you put in. Everybody puts in ten dollars, oh, yeah. and the person catches. I didn't catch the biggest fish that day. That, that thing was enormous. It was enormous, yeah. but it did it didn't win. I'm yeah. yet to win. What kind of fishing do you do, and and why do you love it so much? Um, I'll do any kind of fishing. First of all, except there's only one form of fishing I will not do, and that's ice fishing. Okay. <laughs> because really, all ice fishing is are people getting around, sitting around, being drunk. That's all they're doing. That's, that's they sit true. around and they drink and they look at a hole. I'm that, not doing that. That's Never all my happen. Minnesota relatives. Uh, that's that's what <laughs> they've done for generations. You no, know, I'm not they doing have post traumatic ice fishing trauma. I they for got some wrong hundreds of on. years getting drunk, yes. sitting around holes in the ice. <laughs> that is correct. That is correct. I don't, I don't drink and I'm not going to sit on ice. First of all, I think that's fundamentally wrong to just sit <laughs> on ice. Okay, I'm not, I'm not doing it. So, uh, but fishing got in my blood because my dad uh, was a fisherman. I caught my first fish when I was, must have been about six years old. Um, and my mother, uh, he would, because my people are from Louisiana. He owned a fish market in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. So, of course, all of us kids were taught to fish and crab and do all that stuff. But I was the one, I was so little that I couldn't, my mother would not allow my father to take me over on the pier because she was, of course, afraid I was going to fall over and I'd be dead to them forever. So she, my dad uh, she had to promise her that he would not let me stand out with my siblings who are older than me and fish, which is what I wanted to do. So I cried. And my dad said, don't worry. And we were at San Pedro. I think we're in San Pedro in California. And there's these on the pier are these um, little portholes as you're walking and you open the porthole and it's right down. You look right down to the water. So you okay. can sit on the pier. My father gave me a string, put a hook on it. And a washer. And I caught more fish than any of my siblings. What? <laughs> in that, fishing in that little hole. I pulled out. And my, my siblings kept looking over and seeing me pulling up fish with that string. And that was it. Because see, anyone who fishes, either you get the bug and, you, and, you, and they completely understand me. Or you just don't. Right. Right? So I love fishing. And I lo- by the way, I eat them. That's the other thing. I eat the fish. This Good. is not, you know. Excellent. I eat the fish. Um, and or give them away for other people to, to eat. But that's where it came from, that, that bug, and I never, I never lost it. I think I turned my son into a vegetarian because I took him fishing once and uh, <laughs> caught a fish, and I clubbed it, and it was uh, flopping around in the, in the bottom of the boat and had, like, you know, blood and drool coming out of its little fish mouth, and then we took it home and scaled it and ate it, and uh, he was just, he, I think it traumatized him, I really do. Yeah. Yeah, maybe so, Ray. That was that's a little much for anybody. What you you just described there? Yeah, I was like, that's, that's nature. That's how it works. Oh no, no. Let me tell you where it gets deep. 
it gets deep when you know, I, my brother, Oscar lives in Alaska, right? So there's nothing like Alaska fishing, first of all. There's fishing and then there's Alaska fishing. Okay. And I caught, we caught halibut. There's nothing like catching a giant halibut. But if the halibut is too big, they shoot it with a 22. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, now we've moved from fishing into hunting. Okay? <laughs> and uh, I'm not doing that either. Okay. So if the fish is so big, you got to shoot it. I'm done. You're, that's I'm done. that's where you draw the I, line. I draw the line there. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure uh, talking to you, Joy. And um, we got into some deep stuff. Is there something you want to leave our listeners with? Is there some advice or words of hope? Um, how how would you how would you leave the listeners? What would you what what charge would you give us? There's there's two things that I would think about. There's a wonderful um, African proverb, and it says, "When you pray." Move your feet. Mm. So it's not simply hoping and praying. It's movement. Mm. It's, mm. it's action, right? Mm. So prayer, prayer, faith, religion, these actions. Mm. And uh, the very last, uh, my, one of my favorite proverbs, which I read at the Door of No Return in West Africa, um, it says, if you wish to go fast, then go alone. But if you wish to go far, go together. Let's, let's go together. Mm. That's beautiful. That's really beautiful. That um, makes me think about, I've been reading a lot of uh, some letters from the Universal House of Justice on politics and some writings of Shoghi Effendi about it. And I love coming back to this concept of, uh, you know, we live in a culture of protest. Like, oh, this thing is unfair. I'm going to protest against this thing. And we rally and we yell and we march and we protest and we hashtag. And <laughs> protesting is important in a way, but it's easy and it doesn't solve anything. So exactly. what we're trying to do as Baha'is is we're trying to build a new world order. We're trying to build a spiritually based solution to the world's problems. And that takes a lot of work and it's a lot more than just a hashtag and a marching with a picket. And... Um, so I, I, I have to keep my, my eyes on that because as, as, we're in America right now. It's just a, it's a political whirlwind. You know, it's a, I have to keep my eyes on that prize that we're, we're building something. We're, we're walking together. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was a beautiful conversation. And if people want to see more of your work, where do they go? Um, Joydegrew.com. That's my website. Okay, good. Good. So you hear that, listeners? Check her out. Thank you, Joy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Baha'i Blogcast. Hope you enjoyed the episode and the conversation. Check out more fun Baha'i stuff on Baha'iblog.net. Thank you so much, and good night. <laughs>